Matthew announced that my topic assigned today is, Are We Free Today? Tom has recommended uh, two or three scriptures for us to take a look at, and I'd like to do that. The first scripture is in the eighth chapter of the book of John, beginning in verse 31, and continuing on for a few verses. The book of John is quite a piece of work. But this section of the book of John is one of the critical locations of the whole book. It's a pivotal passage if we want to understand true discipleship. John 8:31 and following. The subjects are truth and freedom. That's the theme of this passage, and these are the things that people have looked for and longed for for as long as man can remember. Truth liberates. Man has searched endlessly and relentlessly for truth in order to be free from the bondage of ignorance. People have always been asking, what is true? What is right? What is wrong? What has purpose? What is meaningful? What can I trust in and know that it will hold? What really matters? What can I count on? What are the realities? The search for truth goes on in the lab, it goes on in the classroom, it goes on in the library, it goes on in the courtroom, it goes on on the internet and in the home, and in the heart of every thinking person. It's an endless quest that we hope continues with the beating of every heart. Truth will free, so people search for liberating truth. Some have given up the quest, concluding that there is no truth, that nothing is really meaningful, that meaninglessness is everything, and that all you can do now is live for the moment because there is no truth. People have substituted non-truth and non-reality, non-morality, and gone off into all kinds of escapes believing that truth is not even to be found. Many college-aged young people have been disappointed to find that their professors don't know any more than they do about the real realities of life. And the professors themselves may have concluded that there is no truth and so propagate an existential philosophy that says you've got only a moment to live and nothing matters but that moment. So live it and do with it what you will. Squeeze it dry, milk it, because that's all there is. There is no right or wrong. There's only non-truth, so why even worry about it? Somebody wrote the story of the futile fisherman. It's a parable to describe man's modern dilemma. A man in a bombed-out city picks his solitary way through the rubble and the scorched and charred earth until he comes to a giant, concrete, deserted apartment building. He enters through the door and he hesitates. He climbs a cement staircase higher and higher, way up into the top part of the building. He begins to stumble down a narrow and black corridor. He turns by chance into a little room. It happens to be a bathroom. 
He steps through the door and he sees a man sitting in that room with a fishing pole and the line dangling into the bathtub. The visitor looks over the scene and finally dares to say, Sir, you're not going to catch anything in there. To which the man replies, I know it, I know it, and continues fishing. That's a picture of the modern search for truth without God. The scorched earth with its rubble and somebody sitting 20 stories up in a cement building fishing in a bathtub for fish that aren't there. There's a dearth of truth in the minds of many. And the places people seek for truth are often devoid of it. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5, that those without a knowledge of God are destitute of truth. And he said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7, that many are ever learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Many don't know truth, and when they hear it, many people don't want it. Here in this 8th chapter of John, on down in verse 45, the Lord said, Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. You're so non-truth oriented that you don't know the truth when it comes or you don't want it when it comes. But the soul of man in his better moments longs for truth. He wants liberation. If a person's soul is not liberated, then they're in bondage. You can take a man whose soul has been liberated by Jesus Christ and you can make him an abject slave. You can stick him in a dungeon and he'll still be a free man. You want to meet a free man? Meet the Apostle Paul. Where is he? He's in jail. His feet are in stocks. What's he doing? Singing to the glory of God and praying to God. He's as free as free can be, though he's in jail. So Jesus comes along here in this 8th chapter of John, beginning in verse 31, and tells the Jewish leaders about truth and freedom. Jesus is, even at this point, beginning to wrap up his earthly ministry. Even though we're only in the 8th chapter, the book of John is heavily weighted toward the end of his ministry. It's only a matter of several months now before he'll be crucified. Jesus has presented his claims. He has declared who he is. He has performed his miracles. He has taught his teachings. And the Jewish leaders have concluded that he is not who he claims to be. Though it seems that there's an ambivalence within these leaders. You know, back in the third chapter of John, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, and we each have to draw our own conclusions about why he came to Jesus by night. The Bible doesn't say why he came by night. I have my personal conclusion about that, and you may too. Back in a world lit only by fire, you're walking down the street at night, people can't necessarily tell who you are. There's no lighting. That may be the reason why he went to Jesus by night. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus, and what did he say? First he called him rabbi, teacher. Rabbi, we know. Now, who's we? So intriguing. I would just like to have an extra 20 volumes of the Lord's commentary on what he's already given us to explain these kind of things, but we don't have that, and I'm sure there are good reasons that we don't. Who is we? Rabbi, we know 
that you are a teacher come from God. He was a Pharisee. Does the we include the other Pharisees? Does it include the other Jewish leaders? It would seem to. Who else would we be? Me and my tapeworm? Who's he talking about? We know. We, plural, that you are a teacher come from God. How do you know that? Because nobody can do the miracles that you're performing unless God be with him. And that was a good conclusion, wasn't it? The miracles were fulfilling the purpose for which they were performed. Many other signs truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book, the book of John, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing this, you might have life through his name. The miracles were written to make believers out of the readers, but they were originally performed to make believers out of the beholders. And they did that. Rabbi, we know. We know who you are. And yet, the public stance of these people was that he's not who he claims he is. So there's, it seems, a pretense going on. This was their story, and they're sticking to it, that he's not who he claimed he was. We cannot allow this to be true. So often, what you decide is true is based on what you want to believe. That's why advertising works so well in America. You want to believe the lies they're telling you. And you know they're lies on some kind of level, but you decide to go ahead and believe it anyway. Rabbi, we know. And yet their public stance was just the opposite of that. He's not who he claims to be, and they weren't above lying about him to convince the common people that he wasn't who he claimed to be. They have been angered and antagonized. They have mocked him and despised him. Now, by the 8th chapter, they're even in the middle of a plot to kill him. He continues to confront them. They continue to mock. They continue to make sure that they misunderstand. But in the midst of all that, there are some who begin to respond by believing. Verse 30 says, As he spake these words, many believed on him. They're sort of half converted. They're in a state of some ambivalence. Their faith is not enough to set them free. It's a baby faith. So the Lord takes them where they are and endeavors to bring them to a full faith. He wants to see them in full salvation if they will choose to get there. So verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, If, there's a condition here, If you continue in my word, then... Are ye my disciples indeed? There's a condition here. He says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples genuinely, truly, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. First thing, believe. Second thing, continue in my word. Well, with all the antagonism rolling around in these chapters of the book of John, with all the mockery and rejection here, it's certainly refreshing to find somebody believing. But the nature of their believing has to be observed very carefully because though we have them believing here in verses 30 and 31, we've already seen that by verse 45, they're not believing. Jesus had said, has said something else by then and they have decided not to believe that. So we see a dissipation of weak faith. Like when you get up early in the morning and there's fog all over everything, but as the sun rises, that dissipates. So their faith dissipates. 
And this is not unusual at all. We see it in our time. We see it throughout the book of John. In John 2.23, when Jesus was at the beginning of his ministry, at the Passover time, he was at Jerusalem. He had just come there to initiate his ministry and to cleanse the temple in that feast day. We find there that many believe in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. But verse 24 of John 2 says that Jesus did not commit himself to them. Why? Because he knew all men. And verse 25 says he knew what was in man. He could read them like a book. He knew the quality of their belief. They had not committed themselves, so he did not commit himself. There are many who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They're not saved. By believing that, no matter what millions of people in this world tell you. In the 8th chapter of the book of Luke, we have one version of the parable of the sower. This is a parable that Jesus probably told many times. In Luke 8.13, he tells the parable of the sower. Some of the seed was sown on rocky ground. They on the rock are they who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy... But these have no root. For a while they believe, but in the time of testing they fall away. So there's a baby faith, and for a while they believe. That's what we have here in the 8th chapter of John. They believe in verse 31, but not in verse 45. See it later in the book of John in the 12th chapter. In John 12:42, Among the chief rulers also many believed on him. Well, that's great. The chief rulers have many among them who believe on him. But, it goes on to tell us that because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we've got these Pharisees. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we believe, but they wouldn't admit it publicly. We'll come by night. One of us will come by night and mention it to you, a sort of a secret disciple. Perhaps Nicodemus was starting to try to be at that point. Rabbi, we believe, the Pharisees, it would seem, believed. I mean, when you have to make up a lie and say he's casting out demons by the power of the demons, when they knew better than that, they knew what power that was. Nicodemus said that they did. So they're pretending that they don't believe in him. And now the chief rulers, many of them believe, but because of the Pharisees who are pretending, they decide to pretend too. They would not confess him. So you've got pretense building upon pretense. A lot of people believing in their better selves if they face themselves in reality, but they won't confess lest they be put out of the synagogue. They believed, but they would not confess. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. In John 12, 42, 43, they did not confess him. They were hung up on a bunch of social strictures and prestige, their own personal prestige. It was more important for them to be esteemed by the high-ups of their own society than it was to be esteemed by God. That's obviously not a saving faith at all. James so clearly shows this in James 2.17. Faith, if it has not works, is dead. 
being alone. Your faith isn't even genuine if there's not something happening because of your faith. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith. Without thy works, I'll show you my faith by my works. The pattern of living speaks as to whether it's genuine. You believe there's one God? That's great. You do well. The demons also believe. And they tremble because they know their ultimate fate. Believing is not enough. Paul says, confession is absolutely necessary. Jesus said, if thou shalt confess me before men, then I will confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. I don't believe there's really any such thing as a secret, hidden disciple of Christ. I've seen people try it. But the book teaches us that you're either open for Christ in confessing Him as your Lord and following His word on His terms, or you're not. I feel sorry for a lot of people. Maybe you study with them, and I've seen this several times. You study with somebody, you help them to see their way clear to accept the Lord on His own terms through faith, repentance, confession, and immersion in water for the remission of sins, and they'll do that, but then they'll say, I can't bring myself to tell my family what I've done. My parents will be so disappointed, they won't understand, they'll feel I'm turning my back on everything they raised me to believe. They're going to take it as a rejection, they're going to take it as a slap in the face, I cannot bear to tell them. Well, I feel very sorry for you. You're facing something I never had to face. And I know there are a number of you here today who have faced this very thing in your families to one extent or another. But this old book teaches us that even if your family is going to consider you dead, you've got to be willing to confess the Lord and your profession of His pure way. I can understand if you want to take a little time to figure out the right words and the right circumstances to communicate with your loved ones, but at some point, my dear friend, that bridge must be crossed if you're committed to your Lord. We've got to confess Him openly. Sometimes you can talk with people for years who say, well, I believe everything, but I'm not ready to give Him my life. And that just is not enough. This book of John is replete. It, it goes together as a united whole. Back in the sixth chapter of the book of John, verse 14, the crowd said, this is, of a truth, that prophet, that prophet that Moses used to talk about. Let's take him and make him a king. And Jesus knew that they were getting ready to make him a king. That's why he got out of there. But these same people in the same chapter, John 6, 66, we read of them that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Fickle crowd. The crowd animal always tends to be fickle and easily led in any direction. What does the Hebrew writer say about this? In Hebrews chapter 10, 38 and 39, Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we, who's we? Well, let's be the we. 
Let's you and me be the we. We are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe unto the saving of the soul. Believing is only the beginning. And it's very important. You can't come to Christ until you believe. But when you believe everything that Jesus has said about himself is true. When you believe everything he has said about you is true. When you believe the judgment of God that is coming on the world is real. When you believe the love of God that he has given to the world is real. Then you need to take that next step. If you continue in my word, John 8, 31. The word continue implies obedience. It can't mean anything else. Repent, confess, be baptized, and live for him. Then are you my disciples indeed, truly, genuinely. I've heard so much about the dichotomy between accepting Jesus as Savior and accepting Jesus as Lord. And I have heard numerous people say, well, I accepted Christ as Savior years ago, but now I want to accept Him as Lord. He's already my Savior. Now I want to make Him my Lord. And I don't want to disparage the attitude that wants to make Him Lord. We need to recognize, though, that the fact is that He's Lord, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, He is Lord. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. If you accepted Him as Savior... If he came into your life at all, he came as Lord too. You don't take him as Savior but not Lord. You take him as he is. And he comes to you as Lord, if at all, because that's who he is. So the question is not, is Christ Lord of my life? The question is, do I obey his Lordship? If you take him at all, you take him in his full character as Lord. When you think of him as Savior, you're thinking in terms of what he can do for you. When you think of him as Lord, you're thinking of what you must do for him. Dominus, the master. The question of obedience is the important question. Isn't that what Jesus meant in the seventh chapter of the book of Matthew when he said, By their fruits you shall know them? There are lots of people who claim to be the Lord's disciples who have no love for his word. They don't want to continue in his word. They don't want to obey it. A true disciple of Christ is word-oriented. Why do we talk about the Bible so much? I've had a young person ask me that before. Why do you talk about the Bible so much? Well, because that's what it's all about. What am I supposed to talk about? The disciples of Christ sit at the feet of Jesus, listening and learning. The word disciple actually means what? A learner. That's what the word itself means. And it's sweet homework to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and learn. No wonder he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and what? Learn of me. The more you learn of him, the more you love him. It changes you when you learn of Jesus. His disciples sit at his feet just like they did in the first century and say, Teach us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. They yearn for every word from his mouth. You live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Be a learner 
Soak it up, take it in, and you grow. And James adds another dimension. I'll add what James adds for what it's worth, because it's worth about infinity. James says, be not hearers only, but be doers. The true disciple doesn't only learn it, she does it. For the true disciple to hear is to do. I just love the fact that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They were learning. They were sitting at the feet of teachers who had sat at the feet of Jesus. 2 John 9 says in so many words, that whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. Doctrine means teaching. If you don't abide in the teaching of Christ, you just don't belong to Him. And that's what these Jews did. This was their mistake over time. And it didn't take a very long time. We like the idea of you being a king. And then he started talking about, a sin, about sin in their lives. And he said, oh, they said, we don't like that. We don't like that part. So they stepped right back out of their faith. They would not abide in it because they didn't like part of it. They went out from us because they weren't really of us. Continue. Abide. Stay in it. Obey it. Saturate yourself with the Word. The fourth and fifth chapters of the Ephesian letter contain so many things that Paul wanted to teach that he had learned from Jesus. Do this and do this. Be this and be this. Saturate your mind and your heart with His Word. And you're going to know the truth. I think it's exciting to be able to stand up in a world in a day when people don't know the truth and stand there with my little mind or your little mind and say, I may not know why all things work as they do scientifically, but I know the God who balanced it all. I know the rationale of the universe. I know the moral order of the universe. I know what the universe is for. I may not understand all the details, but I know the truth. I don't know exhaustive truth, but I know true truth. I know the living truth. I know the truth behind truth. Because people are still fishing in the bathtub and not catching anything. When truth is available all the time. Poor, pathetic Pilate was frustrated. All his life... He'd had this human endeavor, I'm sure, that we've all got, looking for truth, either ardently or passively, as the case may be. In John chapter 18, verse 37, he finally gets to the place in their discussion where he asked Jesus, Are you a king? For this cause was I born, for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everybody that's of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? I would love to have audio recordings of these conversations, to hear the inflection. I'm not certain what Pilate was really asking here. But he seems so jaded and tired, like a lot of judges. Have you ever seen divorce judges who are just so obviously jaded with their job? They seem like they feel, they've gotten to the place where they feel that truth isn't even findable and that what ruling they make doesn't even matter. And some great injustice is done in courts of law. 
by judges who are jaded. It's an awful job. That's the picture I'm getting of Pilate here. He was a purely political animal. And it seems to me that he scoffingly or cynically says, what's truth? What is truth? I've seen modern judges like this, just cynical. Who cares about truth? Let's just get this mess over with. I want to get home for dinner. That kind of idea. Pilate was staring truth in the face. Truth incarnate was standing in front of him. Pilate asked what is truth and he doesn't even stick around for the answer. That's why I think it was cynically said. You know, once you know the truth, error becomes obvious. Once you know the truth, you cannot tolerate error. Jesus prayed to his Father, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. John 17, 17. So he says back here in John 8, 32, Continue in my word, then you're my disciples. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Free what? Free from Satan's blinding power. Free from the chains of spiritual death. Free from the prison house of sin. Are we free today? That's my assignment. Are we free today? Paul says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. The Jews seem to be shocked at the Lord's statement. What are you talking about? Seems to be their attitude. Verse 33, John 8, 33, They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? You ought to be talking to somebody else when you talk like that. Talk like that. Are you saying that we need to be free? We're already free. We've never been anything but free. We're Abraham's seed after all. We've always been free. Have you noticed that in these conversations between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, whenever Jesus confronts these people with their need, they always build a wall. They never admit a need. We're Abraham's seed. We were never in bondage to any man. How can you say, you shall be made free? We're already free. Have you forgotten who we are? You just don't understand. We were never in bondage to any man. <laughs> never in bondage to any man? Never in bondage to any man? What about the Egyptians? What about the Babylonians, the Persians? What about the Romans that are walking armed down your capital city of Jerusalem, going anywhere they want to go? What are you talking about? Never in bondage to any man. The Romans had been there for a hundred years. There are a lot of moments like this when we talk with our religious friends. It just seems like they're thinking in an alternate universe that doesn't really exist. They're not connected to reality. They'll make statements. I mentioned at Summersville Sunday night a statement that Doug Twiddell made up at Pleasant Hill a year or two ago about talking with a man who in the course of the conversation says, well, the Roman letter doesn't even mention baptism. What's your response to that? I mean, what do you say next? It's like, what, what Roman letter do you have? It's really weird, the things that people will say. It's like a complete disconnect from reality. And this statement reminds me of that. We were never in bondage to any man. 
it's just amazing because it seems that they actually believed this. Well, maybe we need to give these Jews the benefit of the doubt and assume that they didn't know their... I think we, we need to assume that they knew their own history, probably, so they must not have been talking about political freedom here. These, they knew their history better than we know it. They knew about the Egyptian bondage and the Babylonian captivity. Let's assume they're talking about the freedom of their spirits. Their people had always had an identity of their own. They had always maintained a freedom of spirit as the Hebrew nation. So maybe they're saying, yes, we've been enslaved exteriorly, but it's like Rick is going to say later about the Apostle Paul, he was in jail, but he was really free. Maybe that's the type of thing they were saying. In our hearts we're free, because we're God's chosen people, and we're secure in that freedom. This may very well have been what they were actually trying to say. We're not in bondage, we're God's chosen people. They're trying to hold on to this racial Abrahamic security. Now, Paul is later going to try to kindly tell them in the second chapter of Romans that he's not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. So what does circumcision really profit? Nobody gets the blessing of God by belonging to a certain race or a certain nation. They thought because of their Abrahamic identity, they were automatically and permanently free. Nothing could affect that freedom, they seem to be saying. So Jesus runs right into this stone wall. It's pretty hard to help somebody who won't be helped, even if you're the Son of God. You can say to a man, I can set you free, and he says, well, I'm already free. What's next? You can't free him until he knows he's a slave. They had this built-in massive denial system. They had a huge defense system of Abrahamic security. So the Lord responds in verse 34, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the slave of sin. Oh, that hits right where they lived. They didn't want to admit it, but that hits where they lived. Whoever does sin is the slave of sin. And the word servant is used in some of these translations, but he's not talking about a servant in the sense of a little guy with a white jacket and a tray in his hand. The word for servant here means a bond slave. The people you send to do the work that nobody else wants to do. You think you're free, he tells the Jews, but you are abject slaves. You are slaves to sin. And the main way that a doulos, a bondservant, could get out of his slavery was to die. In almost every case, they were slaves until they died. And Jesus is referring to them as slaves. Are we free today? In our own time? Are we free right now? Are you free as you sit there? That is the assignment that I am given. And it's an excellent question. Jesus says, he who does sin is the slave of sin. Paul says that there is a change that has taken place in our lives. In the sixth chapter of the Roman letter, he defines this quite elaborately. And I'm going to turn over there and just read a verse or two of it, beginning in verse 17. 
Well, I'll go back up to 16. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. There was a time in your life and mine when we were the slaves of sin. But you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you. Being then made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. He goes further and says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of the flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had you then in those things whereof you now are ashamed, he asked. For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become slaves to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We talked last night briefly about being free from sin. And Paul's talking about it more lengthily here. Being made free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. Fact is, you and I were born to serve. God made us that way. You're going to serve somebody. The question is, who am I serving? Sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness? One or the other. There's not middle ground here. Am I an addict of good works, like Stephanus and his household? 1 Corinthians 16:15 They were literally addicted to the service of the saints. They were devoted. They made up their minds to devote themselves to that service. And as slaves of Christ, they were utterly free. Jesus came to proclaim release, liberty to the captives. Isaiah and quoted in Luke by Jesus when he read it in the synagogue. We must not use our freedom as a cloak of wickedness. 1 Peter 2.16 The crux comes here. All things are lawful unto me, Paul said, but I will not be brought under the power of any. The devil is a master at taking a legitimate appetite and turning it to an obsession which becomes sin. This is exactly what I think Paul is talking about. All things are lawful for me. There are lots of things that I could do, but I will not be brought under the power of any of them. I will not be a slave to anything or anybody but Jesus Christ. Nothing's going to make a slave out of me. Nothing's going to master me. Nothing is going to make an addict out of me. Paul's not even going to let a legitimate appetite master him. Not even eating. He says, meats for the belly, the belly for meats. But both the meat and the belly are going to perish one day. Why allow them to control? Why allow them to enslave? There is such a freedom in self-control. Nobody is free who is not master of himself. Christ has made us free to be all we can be so that we can self-actualize, as Abraham Maslow put it. But I have so often seen among us brothers and sisters enslaved by one thing or another. I've seen people enslaved in the church by tradition. 
A tradition means that which we hand over or hand down from one generation to another. There's no way the church can exist through generations without traditions being formed. We have to have them just in order to be able to function. But we need to distinguish between those traditions and between what the Word of God says. God gave us the Word of God to be restudied in every generation and applied. When we sent out the first advertisement for the first camp out, we got a mixed reaction. We had this advertisement. Uh, the brethren over in Illinois got it professionally printed. This was long before any of us had computers in our homes. It was professionally printed up. It really looked nice. But the church in Wood River had just moved to a place that they named the Prince Road Church. So we sent out this professionally looking advertisement that had the Prince Road Church of Christ on it that very few people knew what it was at that time. My name was on there. And I got phone call after phone call about that. What is this? Who are these people? What is this Prince Road? What are you mixed up in now? We've never done anything like this before. I spent a lot of time on the phone. Some brethren came to that first camp out to spy out the liberty which we had in Christ, as the Apostle Paul would have put it. I think they were pretty well won over by the end of the week. But traditions have an addictive power. It can be for good or for bad. Paul said, hold the traditions that I've taught you. We certainly ought to do that. But we ought not to confuse our personal traditions in 21st century America with what the Bible actually says. We've got to go back to the Bible every time. It's possible to be obsessed with one organization or another. I've been with brethren, sometimes perhaps staying in their homes. All they can talk about is some organization that they are a part of. They're just enthralled with it. It is their passion. And out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speak out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. No other institution or cause must ever be allowed to transplant the Lord's church in the hearts of God's children. We need to put the focus where God puts it. Perfectly possible for your business or your career to become your obsession to the point where it crowds out the more important things. Yes, you should work hard. There are judgment calls to be made here. But many of us who are here today have at points in life gotten lopsided on our priorities about business and career. Sexual desire. The term sex addict was coined a few years ago. This is a notable obsession in our culture at this time. I can practically guarantee you that in a group this size, there are some men who are now addicted to pornography. And a substantial portion of your time and attention is devoted to it. And it dilutes your relationship with your wife, if you have one, it dilutes your relationships and your connections with other people in your life. The Apostle Paul talked in the Ephesian letter, the fourth chapter, about people getting to the place where they are past feeling. And pornography helps you get there. Past feeling. Peter talked about people in 2 Peter 2 who have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. He refers to these people as being virtually creatures without reason. 
like animals to be taken and destroyed. We become more bestial and more coarse, more hardened as we allow sin to have its sway and its way with us. The heart becomes so hardened and the will becomes so weak that a person can hardly be reached. This is why warning after warning concerning sexual lust and perversion, perverted thinking, these warnings are so frequent and so pertinent in the Bible, beginning in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus' teaching and going on from there through the New Testament. Paul says that each one of you needs to know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8 is the entire text there. Flee fornication. Every other sin that a man does is outside the body, but he that commits fornication sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. There's something different about sexual sin as contrasted with other sins. And the New Testament makes this clear. The good news, as always in this world, is that you can overcome this addiction if you chose to, if you choose to. There is help and there is hope. Never feel like that you're just stuck. There is a way out of this. It is easily graspable, but it's not easily followed through on. Probably wouldn't be talking about it if it was. This is a serious issue in our time. We need to face it. There is great shame involved in it, and there should be. But that shame militates against us being able to deal with this issue because people are so reticent to talk about it. You can overcome this addiction if you want to and if you choose to, if you decide that the Lord's way is the better way, if you believe in Him, if you have that confidence in your Lord. There is help and there is hope. What about gambling? I've known brethren that were so addicted to gambling as one brother described it to me, I'm driving down the road on my way home and then all of a sudden something flips in my brain and I'm headed toward the casino. And I can believe that, that it works just exactly that way, that that is his experience. Sit there for three days until your anchors are, are so swollen they will hardly fit in your shoes because of this obsession. This is not infrequent among us. There may be someone here right now with this issue. There is help and there is hope. But whoever is doing sin is the slave of sin. And it feels like a slavery after a while. At some point, you need to ask yourself, am I doing this because I want to, or am I doing it because I have to? When it gets to the have-to place, you are a definite slave. Overeating is a huge enslaving force, especially in America. Not all who are overweight are gluttons, and not all who are gluttons are overweight, believe me. But it's a true issue. If you can't have a conversation without it turning to food in X number of minutes, then what is up with you? The Bible talks about people whose God is their belly. And the Bible teaches moderation in all good things. Cigarettes are killers that travel in packs. Some of us are still addicted to those. I feel sorry for you. It's one of the hardest addic addictions to shake. But you can do it. When will you do that? And if you've done it before and it didn't take permanently, please try again. 
You're killing yourself with that. These things can be true. We could make these same kind of extrapolations about having a bad temper or using your tongue to gossip or having a spirit of bitterness. All of these things are addictive. And whoever does sin is the slave of sin, says our Lord. We need to recognize the power and the beauty of self-control. Proverbs 16.32 says, He that rules his spirit is better than he that takes a city. Mentioned the buffeting of the body last night, 1 Corinthians 9.27. Very important, because in America we have such ease. It's amazing when we live in such prosperous times. The ease and the luxury that we actually have. In that sixth chapter of Matthew, the Lord talks about what we will drink, what we will wear, what we will eat. And anything else is a luxury. And we're wallowing in luxury. And it's, there's nothing wrong with having luxury, but my point is, if the world does not naturally buffet us, we need to go out of our way sometimes to buffet our body. Fasting has its place in the Christian life. There are at least 123 references to fasting in the Bible. It's not our subject, but it is an important subject. Fasting has its place in the Christian life, maybe especially in America. I will not be brought under the power of any, says Paul. Can fasting itself become an obsession? Of course. Of course. So you've got to be in the middle somewhere. Be balanced. Let your moderation be known to all men. Charles Dickens said, I wear the chains I forged in life. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Now do you think that Paul could only say that because he was an apostle that sometimes had special power from God? Or would it be true for you to make that same statement? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I think any of us can make that statement and mean it. The power of God is ready to help us. But we need to decide. Any 12-step program for overcoming addiction is going to tell you that to succeed you have to accept responsibility for your own thoughts and actions. And they always want you, usually in those, to recognize a higher power. But the Christian faith takes you to a higher plane than that. A higher power who truly helps you. Ask, seek, knock. God is more willing to answer fervent prayer than we are to ask in faith sometimes. Nothing wavering. Most addictions are basically spiritual problems. Therefore, the answers are spiritual answers. Self-mastery begins with filling your mind with the Bible. For as you think in your heart, so you are. Proverbs 23, verse 7. We've been talking about the pursuit of happiness this week. I am completely convinced that the happiest people on earth are those who throw themselves into the service of Christ and the brethren and crowd out self-pity and selfishness with positive deeds of goodwill and don't leave themselves a lot of time for obsessions otherwise. I've seen it for half a century. So persevere. And if you fall off the wagon, get back on that horse and ride. You have 30 minutes. Please come back.